Welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, so good to see you guys here this morning. Um, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, so one of the things that marks us here at The Grove is we are expository preachers. So what that means is a majority of time, we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Um, we think the Bible is the clearest uh, expression of God's revelation, but also the clearest expression of who Jesus is. Uh, and so what we want to do on Sundays is, in essence, try to just hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. Uh, that's what we're trying to do each and every Sunday. And we think the best way to do that is to just walk through the Bible, see what the passage means, and then ask the question how it applies to our lives. And so we are uh, on the tail end of 1 Samuel. We've been walking through 1 Samuel uh, for about a year now, and we are going to be in chapters 29 and 30 this morning. So two chapters, chapters 29 and 30. If you grab one of the Bibles, the hardback Bibles on the chairs, it's on page 259 to 261, on page 259 to 261. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you. That is our gift to you. Um, so we'll be in chapter 29 and 30 this morning. So a quick run up um, to what has happened so far uh, in 1 Samuel before we dive into this. Um, so this is a, a lot of 1 Samuel is about kind of this struggle, this, uh, this inner turmoil that happens between these two characters, Saul and David, the first and second kings of the nation of Israel. So Saul rises to power. Um, he takes the throne. Things start off good, but then things begin to turn a little bit. Uh, and then David begins to rise in popularity. He defeats Goliath, um, and everyone has heard the story of David and Goliath, especially in March, as March Madness is about to get started. Uh, you've got David and Goliath, Cinderella, they're all the same kind of thing. Da David is one of those stories that's kind of jumped out of the Bible and into culture today. So people may have heard of David, but don't exactly know what he did. Um, and so he is here rising kind of in popularity and prominence. God is blessing him as he's going out. Uh, he's defeating all the enemies of Israel. He's rising in the ranks, and all of a sudden, people begin to like him more than Saul. And Saul doesn't like that. So Saul loves the praise that he's getting from people. He loves all the hashtags and mentions that he's, that's filling up his social media. It's all about him. Monuments are getting raised. And he's like, yes, this, this is great. And all of a sudden that gets deferred to David. And he didn't like that. So real quickly, I mean, David and Goliath happens in um, 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 18, the next chapter is the first instance we get of Saul trying to kill David. So it happens fast. Saul's trying to then take this guy out. And so from 1 Samuel 18 up to even where we are right now, David lives an incredibly difficult life. He's on the run trying to not die. Okay, I know that there is a number of issues that, that people in here have walked in with this morning, but probably most of us are not being chased trying to be killed by someone and one of our enemies. Our, our goals are trying to say, all right, what are we going to figure out for lunch? Not how do I not die uh, this afternoon? So David is living years now on the run with that kind of stress hanging over his head, that kind of anxiety literally chasing him. So we see it first in chapter 18, Saul tries to kill David. Um, and then also, whenever he can't do it, he then tries to get the Philistines to kill David. Chapter 19, Saul tries to kill David again with his spear. Uh, in chapter 20, Jonathan actually saves David from Saul. Jonathan is Saul's son and uh, David's best friend. So Jonathan has to step in and save him. Chapter 21, David has to leave Jerusalem. He has to leave Israel uh, because, again, Saul's trying to kill him. And he comes up with the idea to say, okay, if I'm not safe in Israel... Let me go maybe to Israel's enemies, the Philistines, and I bet that they'll protect me because Saul's trying to kill me. I'm Saul's enemy, and the Philistines are also Saul's enemy, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so I'll go over there, and we'll see what happens. So he goes to this town called Gath, which is Goliath's hometown that he just killed, uh, and he thinks this is a good idea regardless. Anyway, David goes over there, and King Achish, the king of Gath, the king uh, there, uh, rightfully looks at David and is like, hey, we're going to kill you um, because you've just killed all these Philistines. So David has to act like a madman. He acts like he's lost his mind. And they're like, well, this dude's crazy. He can leave. And so David escapes from being killed by the Philistines. Uh, in chapter 22, Saul then is on the rampage trying to find David. Um, and he goes and finds this town that helped David earlier. And Saul goes and wipes out 85 priests in that town and all of the men, women, children, donkeys, and oxen in that town because they gave David some bread and a sword. So Saul is 
completely off of his rocker, and he's on a rampage trying to get to David. Chapter 23, uh, God barely saves David from Saul. Saul just about catches up to him and kills him, but God delivers David from that situation. In chapter 27, uh, David again flees Israel because he almost died a few chapters before. And he goes and has the same idea. He's like, literally, I don't know where else I can turn. Let me just go back to the Philistines. So he goes back to uh, Israel's enemies because he has this rationale, rationale in chapter 27, verse 1. It's important because it'll come up a little bit today. David said to himself in chapter 27, he said, One of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. And so there's nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. So David's rationale to leave Israel and go to the Philistines is he goes, hey, one day Saul's going to catch up to me. I'm going to be swept away by him and I'm going to die. So I need to head to the Philistines to be able to get out of here. Now, the problem with that rationale is that God has made it abundantly clear to David at this point. David, you are my next king. I will protect you. I will deliver you. I already have been delivering you, and I'll continue to deliver you until I place you as the king. So you're fine. I've got you. But David forgets God's promise and instead takes his life into his own hands and says, I've got to figure this out. So let me go to the land of the Philistines. And it's there that we see David get himself in trouble. Because as we see in chapter 28, he goes to the land of the Philistines, he meets back up with King Achish, and whenever he's there, he convinces the king that he's actually working for the Philistines. So the king thinks now that David has defected from Israel, is now killing Israelites, and is now full-fledged one of the Philistines. He's with us now. And David stays there for a year and four months, it says. And the king's like, David, you're going to be my bodyguard. And not even just my personal bodyguard, but we're about to go out and fight Israel And David, you're going to come out beside me. This is what we saw at the very beginning of chapter 28. As the Philistines were gathering their military units to fight against Israel, and the king said to David, you know that you and your men must march out in the army with me and fight the the Israelites. And David replied and said, well, good, you can find out what your servant will do. Because David's in a a bit of a, a, as as they said in the, the great philosophical movie, The Sandlot, David's in a bit of a pickle. He's in a bit of a hot box here as he realizes there are two now things that are pressing in on him that if either one of them catch up to him, he's going to die. On the one hand, if he's honest with the king of the Philistines going, hey, I'm not a Philistine. I've actually continued to fight for Israel this whole time, and I I hate you guys. Then the king's going to kill him. But if he has to go along with the king's plan, then he's going to have to march out against the people that he will be the king of. God's covenant people, whom he has been anointed as their king, he's going to go out and fight against them in order that the Philistine king won't kill him. And so there's really no good option for, here, uh, for David here. And you can see as he responds, you can hear the ambiguity in his response. Well, you'll find out what your servant can do. What does that mean, David? You should be a politician. We can't exactly nail you down. And David then goes, and Achish, Achish hears that. He's like, that's right, I'm going to see what he's going to do. He's going to go out and he's going to take out all the Israelites. And that's his response. Very well. I will appoint you as my personal bodyguard. So the king of the Philistines is completely convinced. David is our guy. But David is, is stuck here. And then we get into chapter 28, as we saw last week, what Saul's situation is, what his problem is. And so we have both of these men, Saul and David, in difficult situations Saul has received kind of the final judgment from God that the the kingship has been removed from him and he will die the next day. So Saul's judgment is clear. David is in a pickle and David is being told that he's going to march out against the Israelites and Saul is going to die in that attack. And so it's in that setting where there's in between a rock and a hard place and not really any sunshine on the horizon that we then get to chapter 29. What is going to happen? How You can hear it like the 1940s TV narrator finishes chapter 28 and stay tuned for next week as we see, will David get away from the Philistines? Will I knock my phone off the place up here where it was? <laughs> and then put it back. What's going to happen? Uh, and then that gets us as, uh, as readers on the edge of our seat wondering, how is David going to get out of it? But if we've been reading through 1 Samuel, we know the question we should be asking is, how is God going to deliver him? And that leads us then to chapter 29 and 30. So we'll read through this before we, before we dive in. 1 Samuel 29. The Philistines brought all their military units together at Aphek. 
while Israel was camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine leaders were passing in review with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were passing in review behind them with Achish. And the Philistine commanders asked, hey, what are these Hebrews doing here? Achish answered the Philistine commanders, well, that is David, the servant of King Saul of Israel. He's been with me for a considerable period of time, from the day that he defected until today. I found no fault with him. The Philistine commanders, however, were enraged with Achish and told him, send that man back. Let him return to the place that you assigned him. He can't go down with us into battle, only to become our adversary during the battle. I mean, what better way could he ingratiate himself with his master than with the heads of our men? Isn't this the David that they sing during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So Achish summoned David and told him, as the Lord lives, you are an honorable man. I think it's good to have you fighting in this unit with me, because I found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. But the leaders don't think that you're reliable. Now go back quietly, and you won't be doing anything the Philistine leaders think is wrong. But what have I done, David replied to Achish. From the first day I entered your service until today, what have you found against your servant to keep me from going to fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered David, I'm convinced that you're reliable as an angel of God, but the Philistine commanders have said he must not go into battle with us. So get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came along with you. When you've gotten up early, go as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning and returned to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They also had kidnapped the women and everyone in, in it from the youngest to the oldest. They'd killed no one, but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelite and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops had talked about stoning him. For they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So David said to the priest Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? And the Lord replied to him, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. So David and the 600 men with him went. They came to the Wadi Besor, where they some stayed behind. So David and 400 of the men continued the pursuit, while 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Besor. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. After he ate, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. So David said to him, who do you belong to? Where are you from? I'm an Egyptian, the slave and Amalekite man, he said. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We raided the south country of the Cherethites, the territory of Judah, and the south country of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. And David then asked them, will you lead me to these raiders? He said, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, and I will lead you to them. So he led them. And there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped, except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters, and all the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the flocks and herds which were driven ahead of the other livestock, and the people shouted, This is David's plunder. And when David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Wadi Basur, they came out to meet him and to meet the troops with him. And when David approached the men, he greeted them. But all of the corrupt and worthless men among them who had gone with David argued, well, because they didn't go with us, we'll not give them any of the plunder we recovered. 
Except each man's, his wife, his children, they may take them and then go. But David said, my my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed us over to the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. And it's been so from that day forward. David established this policy as a law and an ordinance for Israel, and it still continues today. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to his friends, the elders of Judah, here, saying, Here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He sent gifts to those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and in Jatir, to those in Aurora and Sifmoth and in Eshtomoah, to those in Rakal and the towns of the Jeramalites and in the towns of the Kenites, to those in Horma and Borshan and in Athach, to those in Hebron and to all the places where David and his men had roamed. So we see, okay, there's, there is some story here as God is now delivering David. But what in the world do we see in this story and how it could somehow apply to us? And so as, as we are asking that question, I want to focus in on one, one main theme that we see tied throughout these two chapters. And that theme is God's providence. We see God's providence here acting. And so the four uh, points that we have we'll walk through today. First, we'll, ask, we'll look at when providence is surprising. We'll see that in chapter 29, verses 1 through 11. Second, we'll see when providence is bitter in chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. Third, when providence is precise in chapter 30, verses 9 through 20. And then finally, what providence produces in chapter 30, verses 21 through 31. So it's kind of our mile markers we'll be walking through the text. So asking the question, how do we see God's providence working? And what can we then take as it applies to our lives? So first, as we dive in, I want to define that word, providence. What does providence mean? What comes from, stems from, the, the root word for it is the word provide. And so as we see, I, I want to define providence this way, that providence is providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. That's what God's providence means, providing for or sustaining and governing the entire universe by God. So that's our definition I want to begin with, that we see that God is providing, sustaining, and governing that God in his providence plays an active, intentional, and redemptive role in this world. He is active. He's involved in the details, and those details are intentional. They are deliberate, and those deliberate, intentional decisions are made ultimately for the redemption of all of creation, as we see through his son, Jesus Christ. So God in his providence. So God is not the idea of God being like a uh, clockmaker who got a clock, put it together, wound it up, and kind of stepped back from it is not the God of the Bible that we see. God didn't just wind up creation and let it go its course and kind of see what happened. God is still very active in the world and his creation. So we see then this idea of providence. And what I, the other theme I want us to kind of press into is the theme of control. And asking the question, who controls our lives? Uh, And what we'll see is that often whenever we try to take that mantle ourselves, when we try to take control of our lives, is whenever we often see problems arise. And we see that play out in chapters 29 and 30. As we see these two themes kind of in competition with one another, in providence and control. So beginning, when providence surprises in chapter 29. Remember David's problem. David's problem is that he has got himself... Because he's tried to take control of his own life. He's forgotten God's promise. And he says, listen, Saul's going to kill me. I've got to figure out what to do. I've got to take matters into my own hands. Right? A very Thanos kind of approach in which uh, he looks at the world and goes, listen, all these people aren't doing it. I've got to go and do it myself. As Thanos says as he grabs the Infinity Gauntlet and goes to get the Infinity Stones. Listen, I told you, Captain Marvel came out this weekend, and so Marvel jokes are coming. Um, Marvel illustrations are on their way. It's contextual. It's applicable. The Apostle Paul would do the same thing if he were here. So Saul looks at it and he says, okay, I've got to do, I mean, David looks at it and says, I've got to do this myself. And he goes, God, uh, I've got this. I'm going to go to the Philistines and I'll figure it out from there. And when he goes there, when he does that is whenever David's issues begin. Whenever he then gets into situations that he can't get out of. And he pushes himself into the situation for 16 months. He lived uh, in the, the Philistine territory and kind of endeared himself to the king and so much so the king's like, hey, you got to go fight with me. 
And so David is faced with the choice, do I go and kill the people that I'm going to lead or do I stand up for what God has called me to and then uh, the king would kill me? Those seem to be my two options. And we see David kind of falter here. He hesitates. But who are David's saviors in chapter 29? As we see David's problem, we see kind of this surprising providence of God and how David is delivered. David isn't delivered by his own kind of courage and confidence in God's promise. He doesn't come before the king and go, no, I am King David, the anointed one of God who will one day lead God's people out. And it doesn't matter what your army is, me and my 600 men will be able to stand up against you, not because of the greatness of our army, but because of the greatness of our God. And there's this epic battle where David rises over the entire army of Philistines. That's not what happens. Who are David's saviors in chapter 29? It's the Philistine commanders, the people that deliver David from his issue. The kind of surprising saviors of David's problem are these Philistine commanders that come to Achish in verse 3 and go, hey, what are these Hebrews doing here? King, you, you realize, you know that song you've heard? Right, it's getting a little old at this point, but it used to be number one on the Billboard Top 40. Right, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Do you know who those tens of thousands were? They were Philistines. We're, we're the Philistines. This is, this is not going to be good. What, what are you thinking? And the king's like, no, 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 He's, I, I trust him. But the commanders continue to press. They go, no, let him go back, right? You see this in verse four. They're enraged with him. And they go, no, send the man back. We don't care what you've done with him or how much you trust him. Think about it. How much, what a better plan for him to be able to kind of gain back trust with Israel's, uh, the Israelites than to go into battle and all of a sudden turn against us and bring our heads to King Saul. It just is a bad idea. Let him go. And so the king's like, listen, I don't want to do it, David, but you know, Majority wins, and I don't want my rulers to turn against me, my commanders to turn against me, so you're going to have to leave. You don't have to fight. And the people that deliver David from his situation are his enemies. And what we see here, if we're not careful, if we just read this chapter, we can read that and go, oh man, what an incredible coincidence that the people that saved David were his actual enemies. But again, an astute reader who's been walking through the story, seeing the intentionality of God, seeing the protection that God has around David, cannot read chapter 29 without seeing that God and his providence loves to use unexpected saviors from people in their situations. That there is no amount of our own stupidity that is beyond God's mercy, that is beyond God's salvation. God is saving David yet again, as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel. So in 1 Samuel earlier, God saved him from Saul. He saved him from the Philistines. But here in chapter 29, God is saving David from himself. And what we have to be careful with is we can't read chapter 29 and go, oh, that promise to David is the exact promise to my life. I can get myself in just a whole mess and God is going to deliver me. Listen, you're not King David. I hate to break it to you. I know you guys, and y'all are awesome, but you're not going to be kings, and you're not going to be queens. The promises that were given to David were specific to him. So one of the bad ways to read the Bible is to read things without context, pull them out, and apply it to our lives. That's often how heresy gets started and are just awful ways to live the Christian life. We need to understand that God's protection here of David is particular with his promise of placing David as the king of Israel in the story of redemptive history. So we can't just take the promise and automatically apply it to us saying, well, God will absolutely deliver us no matter what we get ourselves into. Listen, the reality is, is you may, by your own choices, get yourself in a situation in which God allows you to feel and uh, go through the consequences of those choices. That absolutely may happen. But here's what it does mean. And here's what we can take from that. What it does mean is that not even your stupidity is enough to be able to stall the mercy of God. Not even the, the worst choices that you may have. If God is going to use you, then you cannot stop the will of God as he is holding you fast, right? This is the promise that we see in Philippians 1.6. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you hear Paul's confidence? His confidence is not in you making sure you don't screw your life up. 
His confidence in the fact that the Holy Spirit who began a work in you, he will bring it to completion. And that then brings us trust to be able to say that, God, I know that that I may get myself in a situation in which I have to then understand the consequences of it. But what I do know for certain is that there is no amount of my own stupidity that can install your purposes and your plan for my life. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said that your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Friends, you are not strong enough to do that. And this is the promise we see that Jesus tells us that there is no one who can snatch us from the Father's hand. That salvation is secure and that there is nothing we can do to come against that, to break free from that, all those who are truly in him. And so God loves to be able to bring his purposes about in surprising ways. And so understanding that we may get in situations where we look around and go, I don't know how to get out of this. Friends, God is infinitely more creative than we are and is often able to use the things that we think are bringing in these circumstances and pains into our life and use those as a means of deliverance. God loves to take that which is evil and use it for his good and his glory. Goodness, we see this most clearly in the cross. This was the murder, unjust trial, and crucifixion of God himself. I mean, we need to pause and remember that this was the most evil act in human history. And God has taken that, and he now holds it up as the great hope and joy and salvation of so many. Friends, imagine what he can do with your lives as we then take and see just how surprising sometimes providence may be. So not only is providence surprising, we also have to acknowledge that sometimes providence is bitter, right? So we see then in chapter 30, verses 1 through 8, when providence is bitter. So David is freed from his problems with the Philistines, and for the first time probably in a while, David gets to kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Awesome. Finally, a break. Man, did I need one. And now we get to go back to our wives and our kids And we don't have to worry about this kind of issue and what happens when they arrive. They see that the town has been ransacked, it's been raided, burned to the ground, and their families are gone. And so one of the things that, again, you'll hear, we talked about this some last week, is that there are strains of Christian teaching that will say, if you're following God, as long as you have faith, things will go good in your life. And listen, that's fine while people while things are going good but what I can tell you is that there will come a moment in your life where things will not be going good where the brokenness of this world will begin to creep into your life and all of a sudden tears will begin to fall and you'll answer the phone and you'll hear words like cancer on the other end of it and you won't know what to do with it and if you've been told that your faith will promise you and give you a good and easy life in that moment you've got two choices You either blame yourself for not having enough faith and go, man, if I just believed more, I wouldn't have this cancer. Goodness, if I just believed more, this wouldn't be happening to my kids. And you put blame and guilt on yourself that you cannot bear the weight of. Or you just look at it and you go, man, this thing's just hogwash anyway. I'm turning away from this because this is ridiculous. The world doesn't work like this. And friends, the, the truth is that we don't have to have those choices in front of us. But what we see is that there are times in which God's providence is bitter in our lives. Right When David gets back, he sees that the town is burned to the ground, their families are gone. Right? We have the benefit to see that the Amalekites were the ones to take them, but they don't know that. The Amalekites didn't leave a calling card at the scene of the crime, like, hey, David, if you want to come find us and kill us, here's where you can find us. They just show up, and the town's gone, and their families are gone. There's no social media, there's no GPS, there's no Google Maps. Uh, They have no leads. Not only that, but David's men have now turned against him. Right? We see this in verse 4. David and the troops wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. Man, what what a verse. And have you ever been there, experienced that kind of pain and brokenness, that kind of bitter providence in which you wept until it felt like you had no more strength left to weep? David's family was gone, and David was in an extremely difficult position, verse 6. That kind of sums it up, right? It's like, really, author of 1 Samuel? Like, we kind of realize that. David was in an extremely difficult position. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Yes, it was a difficult position. But not just because of what was happening to him, but also because the troops now talked about killing David. So David's men, who had walked with him now for years, left their families roaming through the countryside. They've now turned as well and said, listen, we got to take this guy out because we've been sleeping in caves. We've been fighting for our lives, and now our families are gone. 
and we need to take him out. And they were very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. And so the providence that David experienced then was bitter. It was probably made that much harder because kind of for the first time he had this sigh of relief. He's like, okay, finally something goes my way. And then right as you start to feel good again, then the walls come crashing down. And my question is, if we've ever been in difficult positions like that, if you've ever been in difficult positions like that, what is our knee-jerk reaction to do? How do we respond? I want to ask the question and look and see how David responds. As he's in this very difficult, extremely difficult position, with his life coming in around him, at this point now completely alone, even his faithful men are turning against him, what does David do? Look at verse 6. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David was finally back. He was done trying to take his life into his own hands. He had to reach the end of his rope to get there. He had to get to the point where he was completely alone with no family and no hope for survival. It wasn't the Philistines trying to kill him. It was his own men. And it took that for him finally to turn back to God and say, God, I... I can't do this anymore. Let me find my strength in you. And he rested then in God's providence in his life. For the first time in a number of chapters, he was done trying to control his own life. And I don't know about you, but that's tremendously difficult to do, to let go of that control that we feel like we have. And I say it that way because control is really an illusion in our lives, friends. We don't have control. There's not a single person in this room whose life wouldn't be turned upside down in a second with a phone call when you actually walk out of here and can get cell service. (laughs) Every single one of us, we feel like we might have some sense of control, but friends, it's an illusion. And as we are trying to hold on and grip on to the pieces of our life, trying to put them together, whenever it begins to spin out of control, that's when we begin to feel worry, anxiety, stress, overwhelmed as we try to spin all these plates in our lives and we see one falling over there and we go to try to spin it and we hear things crashing behind us and we can't get there because these are about to wreck and we feel like we can't be everywhere at the same time but we're trying we're trying with everything that we can to control it we're looking at our futures trying to ask the question what do I want to do with my life right we have a lot of high schoolers here this morning that came down from Mississippi to help us this morning getting set up and they're hosting the volunteer banquet tonight we're You guys are awesome, by the way. Thank you all for being here. But there is a question for you guys. As you're graduating high school and for so many other students here, there's so much pressure on you. Ask, what do you want to do with your life? What are you going to choose to do? And there's a danger, there's a temptation to fall into this mindset that says, how am I going to control my life? What major am I going to choose? What university am I going to choose? What guy or girl am I going to marry? What path am I going to take? What fraternity sorority am I going to join? What, what club am I going to be a part of? Whatever it may be. And we, we begin to feel, or maybe you have begun to feel, the weight of that pressure of trying to control what your life may be. And let me just tell you the freedom that comes at this point. If you realize, yes, you've got to make choices, but the undercurrent of your life is not in your control. It's in the control of a providential God who's in control and moving in every single moment. And that can bring peace to a situation and a choice where it feels like there might not be one. And so you might make the wrong choice and go to Ole Miss. You might do that. Yeah, our our Mississippi State fans doubled here this morning. So I've got a good Mississippi State crowd here this morning. But you may make the wrong choice and go to Ole Miss, but God is still providential. God can and will still move in your life for your good and for his glory. And so that frees us from not having to make choices. You still got to make choices. You still got to go to college uh, somewhere. If you're going to go to college, you still got to figure out what you're going to major in. But underneath the foundation of it is resting and going, God, I'm choosing this, but I know that you're in control and not me. And David finally got to that point. So my hope and prayer for the students here, goodness, for everyone here, is that it wouldn't take God having you getting to the end of your rope to realize that. God let David get to that point in his providence, tasting the bitter providence of God so that David would turn back to him. And friends, that was the most gracious thing that God could do. Because it brought David back to the foot of the cross. It brought David back to say, God, I need to find my strength in you.
And God uses that which is meant for evil and he uses it for his good. But we don't have to get to the end of our ropes to realize that. You can realize that today. You go, God, I understand you are the one in control and not me. Let me find my strength in you. Not in my planning, not in my budgeting, not in my networking, not in my bank account, not in my retirement, but let me find my strength, my confidence, and my salvation in my God. But the question then comes, at least it does for me, like that sounds great and it sounds very like Christianese. Let's go find strength in our God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to find strength in God? Well, there's a few things that we see here from David that gives us kind of an understanding of what it means to find strength in God. I want to make sure that we, if if there's nothing else we hear, that we hear kind of these three things. Okay, as my life spins out of control and I'm in extremely difficult positions, let me then turn and find strength in God. How do I do that? Well, first, we see that David understands that he has a personal God. Right? Notice what David says. Look, look at verse 6. But David found strength in the Lord, not the Lord their God, not the Lord Israel's God, but in the Lord his God. David knew the personal relationship that existed between him and Yahweh, between him and the covenant God of Israel. God was his God. David could say that he is my God. And so David here at the very beginning, he, or at the beginning of this chapter, he walks up on the scene in Ziklag and no longer can he say my family because his family is gone. No longer can he say my possessions because they've been burned to the ground and stolen. No longer can he say my city. No longer can he say my army, but he can still say my God. He is my God and he has not left me. Friends, the very first thing that we need to understand in finding strength in God is that God is a personal God. He is your God. If you have followed Jesus and have trusted in him, God is now your father. Father is the Christian name for God. As we get to come then and approach him this way. I love this verse in John 16, verse 27. Jesus looks at his disciples and just says this. He says, the father himself loves you. And friends, there may be some of you here this morning that don't need to hear anything else but that. The Father himself loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not sitting back crossing his arms going, what in the world is this idiot doing? When are they going to get it together? Hear the compassion, the tenderness, and the father-like love of God as the Father himself loves you. But Caleb, my life's a mess. Yeah, the Father himself loves you. No, Caleb, listen, I I continue to struggle with the same sin. I can't get over it. Yeah, I know. The Father himself loves you. No, Caleb, my, my life is literally spinning out of control, and I can't find any kind of hope or joy or anything else. Yeah, I know. The Father himself loves you. We have a personal God, but he is not just personal. He's also a promising God. He is a God who is both personal, but also a God that promises. And he's always good on his promises. He's not like me, who's the world's worst texter and never texts back to people. Uh, God always texts back. Always. He doesn't have to leave it unread. He He knows. He hears it and he responds. He promises and he promises to do things. And those promises are always good. He never writes a check that bounces. God then goes and he promises to his people. And what we do to find strength in our life is to go and find those promises and hold on to them with everything that we can. What do the promises then apply to me? And let me grab a hold of that. Goodness, I'm walking through an unbelievably difficult time in life right now. Maybe you're walking through what you would describe as an extremely difficult position. And maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've just had a diagnosis that you've heard in your family that's crashing your world around you. And you run to John 17 where Jesus says, in this world you will experience tribulation, but find hope because I have overcome this world. And you run and you grab a hold of that. And listen, that won't fix your situation, but that can give us hope and peace and joy in the midst of suffering. And we have a hold of it and we find the promises that God has given us and we hold on to them. This is what David does, right? Whenever Jonathan, his friend, comes in chapter 23 earlier, David was in a hard situation. It says that Jonathan came and strengthened his hand in the Lord. Jonathan came and strengthened David in the Lord. And you know how he strengthened him? He reminded David of God's promise to David. 
said, David, I know that my dad wants to kill you, and this is like weird right now, but God is going to make you the king. Do you remember? He promised you that. So hold on to that promise. Find strength in that promise. And so we have both a personal God, but also a promising God. And so run, run to the scriptures, find God's promises for your life and grab a hold of them. If you're struggling this morning with guilt or shame because of sin or secret sin in your life or temptation or other things that the enemy is currently trying to weigh down guilt and blame and shame in your life, run to Romans 8.1 and grab a hold of the promise that says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever you hear the enemy whisper in your ear, but do you know what you've done? Yes, I know, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I stand on that because my God has told me this promise and I can hold on to it and find strength in my God. But not only a personal God and a promising God as David reminds himself of the promises that he's received, but we also see an approachable God an approachable God. As David then in verses seven to eight, he goes to the priest, the only priest that's left, Abiathar, and he brings the, the ephod and David brings it and Abiathar brings it to David and David asks the Lord, God, should I pursue these raiders and will I overtake them? And God replies and says, pursue them for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. So David then approaches this God asking for guidance and direction and God gives it to him. But friends, we do not have Abiathar anymore, the high priest. We don't have an ephod that we can go then and asking for a specific direction in our life. Right? You, you can't, we don't have a linen ephod out in the lobby that you can go and grab and go, hey, God, which college should I go to? Tell me. And then you just will get the answer. That's not how it works. But friends, we have a greater high priest than Abiathar. And we have more access than David did to this God to this throne room of God as we come, the author of Hebrews writes that we have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so we can therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness. We can have that kind of access, that kind of approachability. So as we find strength in God, we remind ourselves that we can then approach this holy God who is now our father, who loves us and who sees us in that lens and through that perspective as his children. Right, is this not what Jesus does every time? This is why. Every time Jesus prays, he prays in that context, our Father. That's how the prayer begins, reminding people. Remember, as you go, understand who you're going to. You're going to your Father. And Jesus says, look, look at other parents. If someone asks for bread, are they going to give them a stone? Are they going to give them a snake? No, parents will give their kids food if they ask for it. How much more will your Heavenly Father treat you and give you as you come to him? We have an approachable God. And we have a level of access that David did not have. And so think about it. Like for, for um, in my life, uh, my daughter, Millie, who's two and a half years old, she has a level of access in my life that you guys do not have. Right at 5.30 this morning, while she was crying, and I was like, listen, isn't this daylight savings? Doesn't it work the other way where the kids are sleeping later and we have to wake them up? How are you waking up earlier than normal? And we're losing an hour. Is this like some conspiracy that the kids get together somehow and do this? I'm not entirely sure. Regardless, we have more coffee in the lobby if you need to get up and go get some. But as she comes in to my bedroom early in the morning, as I'm still barely human, and she walks in and is crying, and she has a level of access to me that you guys don't have. If you guys walk into my house in my bedroom at 530 in the morning, it's not going to go well for you. I'll just go ahead and let you know. But she has a different kind of access to me. She can come to me at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask for a cup of water, and she's going to get it. Why? Because she's my daughter. And we need to understand that that's the relationship that we have with God. We have that kind of access to him because we are his children, and he is our father. And so we have a personal God. We have a promising God, and we have an approachable God. And whenever we remind ourselves of that in the midst of difficult situations, it doesn't fix it, but we will find strength. And we will find strength in the Lord. So that's whenever we see providence being then bitter. But what about when providence is precise? We will go through these last two points very quickly. When providence is precise. I need, to get that, I need to get that timer up where I can see it more. Um, when providence is precise, uh, chapter 20, verses 9 through 20, right? In this story, we see then David goes to find the Amalekites, and they stumble upon this Egyptian, 
Right? We see this then in uh, verse, um, uh, verse 9. Well, let's say, uh, verse 11, David's men found an Egyptian in the open country. And this Egyptian was somebody who was a servant for the Amalekites, but he got sick, and the Amalekite guy was like, hey, you're worthless, get out of here. And so for three days he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, and David finds them, and he is able to lead them to the Amalekites. Now, again, you read that, and you may go, man, what an incredible coincidence, but you cannot get past the incredible precision of God's providence. As this man got sick, frustrated, his master was left behind, and David and his men just stumbled upon him. This was literally the key for David then recovering his families. If this guy doesn't get sick, if his master doesn't get frustrated, if he doesn't stay in this spot, David and his men never find him, but they just found an Egyptian. And this is what God used to be able to lead him then back to his families. God in his providence was incredibly precise in every single little moment. So when David went and found strength in God and followed his providence, God then took over and began to use even the smallest, most insignificant moments and use them as the thing that completely changed the trajectory of the story. Right? This is what we see in our lives. Providence is often only visible in the rearview mirror. But as we look back, you can probably see these small little insignificant decisions at the moment in your life that you made completely altered and God used to completely alter your life. Whether it was your meeting of your spouse, the job you ended up taking, where it is you live, uh, who knows what it might be. But you can often trace them back to something like that. And David and his men found an Egyptian. And so God uses his providence, and it's tremendously precise. Uh, Fourth, then, we see what providence produces, verses 21 through 30. David and his men catch up to the Amalekites. They kill all of them except 400 men. They recover all of their families and all of the stuff that they had taken, and then even more. And then what happens? They take everything, and they go back because they had to leave behind 200 men who were tired. And the 400 men who were with David go, hey, we're not giving you guys what, what you guys deserve. You guys didn't come and fight with us. You just get your families and leave. You don't get any of the the plunder that we got, which I wish we used the word plunder more often in our society. Anyway, you don't get any of the plunder that we got. We deserved it. We fought for it. This is our, this is right. What do they say in uh, chapter 30, verse, um, verse 20? This is David's plunder and you didn't fight for it. So you don't get any. And how does David respond to that? In verse 23, David said, my brothers, we must not do this. Listen to this. We must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us, and he handed over to us the raiders who came against us. David doesn't say, hey, we can't give to them what is mine or what is ours. He said, we cannot give, we we can't keep from them what the Lord has given us. David understood God's providence in this situation. David understood that their might and their strength did not overcome the Amalekites. David understood that God in his sovereign providence gave all of it to David. And David goes, how in the world then can we hoard this up for ourselves when it was never ours in the first place? And a right understanding of providence then produces a right living of stewardship. So providence produces stewards. Providence produces stewardship. What I mean by that? A steward being someone that doesn't own it. It's somebody who watches something for a little while, has it on loan, who's making sure that as they have it, they take good care of it so that they give it back to the rightful owner. When my wife and I went up to do a pastoral internship in Washington, D.C., we went and lived up there. They provided housing, but the rub was that you couldn't take any pets with you. And as you guys may or may not know, we have a ferocious four-and-a-half-pound Yorkie poo named Ralphie that we love dearly. But we couldn't take him with us. And so we didn't know what to do. But we asked some of our good friends. We're like, hey, we're going up there for six months. Can you guys watch Ralphie? He's ferocious, so watch your children and, and your neighbors because um, he will take out your ankles. But just um, could you watch him? And so for six months, we're up there, and they watched our dog, took care of him, fed him, gave him a haircut. They had some photo shoots. He was so cute. Um, and during those whole six months, do you know what their perspective was not? Their perspective was not, oh, yeah, this is now my dog. I'm going to do with it what I want. They understood from the very beginning, we've got this dog for a few months, but whenever he comes back, this is his dog, and we'll give it back to him. That's the idea of what stewardship is. It's an acknowledgement that what we have is someone else's, and we watch it for a little while. And friends, in our lives, understanding God being sovereign and providential over everything in our lives, that then produces in us a perspective that everything we have in our lives is not our own. It is God's. And everything that we have has been given to us as stewards to be able to watch over it for a little while and ultimately giving it back to him, 
right? This is what then frees David. This isn't just a theological point that he argues. This changes the way that David lives. And this is what good theology does. Theology that just ends in arguments and debates that you can win, that doesn't impact your life, friends, that's not theology. The best theologians are demons. They know everything there is to know about God, but they do not love him and does not impact their lives. And so may we not be a people that just stores up true things about God and it doesn't change the way we live. May it change the way we live like David. As David then goes, no, we are stewards. And my understanding of God's providence produces in me stewardship, a grace that is generous. Grace in my life doesn't just stop with me. I then let that flow out to all those around me. And so how can we do this with what the Lord has given us? He protected us and he handed it over to us. So not only to the men, but we see David then distributes it throughout all of Israel because he understands this is not mine in the first place. And so that then begins to change our entire perspective of our lives. No longer do we say, this is my job, this is my house, this is my couch, this is my career, this is my life, these are my kids. We then begin to understand, oh God, all of these things are yours. And you've given it to us for a little while, but we are stewards, we are not owners. And so may we watch over this, but understanding that we hold these things loosely because what that begins to do then is it keeps those things from then gripping the, uh, the clutches of our hearts, becoming idols in our hearts because we go, these things are not mine. So within giving in the church, we don't go, this is my money. Let me give back to God some of what I've earned. We go, no, God, this is all yours. The psalmist writes this and says, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, God. You don't need our sacrifices. You want our hearts. And so let me be a steward of everything that you've given me because it is yours. With our children, we don't go, these are my kids, and I want to make sure that I, I do with them whatever it is that I want and, and the, the careers that I want them to do. We go, no, God, these are your children, and you've given to us for a little while. And may we then steward them well, but understanding that they are ultimately yours. Goodness, with, with our houses and with our stuff, I think one of the greatest barriers to hospitality and discipleship in our homes is that we don't understand that our homes are not our own. We think, this is my couch. I can't let people in here that are going to mess it up. This is velvet. They're going to bring dirt in here. You know how hard it is to clean velvet? I can't let people in here. This is my couch. But we understand God's providence, that he has given us everything that we have, and they are ultimately his. We are then free to let our couches get dirty. We're free to be able to let stains get on rugs. Because it'll happen and we'll try to clean it up. But if we can't clean it up, we go, God, ultimately, this is your rug. It is not mine. Don't let me try to, don't let me limit your use of, of me and my life by making disciples because I can't understand that this rug is not my own. So, I, so honestly, I felt this even a little bit as we've started to get the office downtown remodeled, our offices that we're getting in. We've got, you know, rugs there. There's a couch there. And there's a bit of me that's like, man, this place looks really good. I need to make sure no one ever comes in here. <laughs> They'll just mess it up. And I, and I begin, so even in that moment, I go, okay, I've got to be okay. If we open it up and let the community be able to come in, say on a first Friday, bring their food in. What if food gets on the rug? God, it's not my rug. Is your rug. Let me be a good steward of it while I have it, but let us ultimately make sure that we are freed from our stuff and our possessions trying to make them our own, that we can hold them open-handedly as we walk forward to live the life that you've called us to live. And may we be good steward, and may our understanding of providence produce stewardship in our lives. Because the providence of God uh, is at times surprising and bitter, but it is always precise, and it's producing stewards of what God has provided. So the next time you find yourself in an extremely difficult position, I hope that we're better prepared to find strength in God, a personal God, a promising God, and an approachable God, knowing that even if we lose everything else, he will never lose us. Let's pray.